Yeah, let's do it. I'm pumped. Let's let the healing begin. God help you if you use voiceover in your work, my friends. God help you. It's flaccid, sloppy writing. I don't want you to be the guy in the PG-13 movie. Everyone's really hoping makes it happen. I want you to be like the guy in the rated R movie, you know? The guy you're not sure whether or not you like yet. Hello and welcome to this special edition of the Get Your Film Fix podcast. little play on words there that'll make sense later. Today we are, oh, I am joined by Lee Carlo, but no Jeremy Fisk, no, Captain American Calls, and so he had to tag out, and in comes Brantley Palmer, Live Free or Die, and... Yep. Thank Can I just you, say Brant- something real quick of about Brantley joining us? I think sure. from now on, the intro should be, you know, I'm Chapin, I'm with Lee, and no, not this week, no Brantley. This week, subbing in is Jeremy Fisk, or something along those lines. <laughs> That's We could do that. Something to think about. Okay. Something, yeah, to think about. something to think about. I just think Brantley deserves more credit than being the sub now. No, of course oh. not. I mean, I think, uh, I mean, I'm, we... Knowing that Jeremy was not going to join us this week, I think I'm. We picked a movie that was particularly. I think I'm glad to have Brantley on this podcast for this movie, which in fact will be from again going back to 1999, 20 years ago, and actually we're pretty close to the actual 20, the actual 20 years exactly mark of when this film was released in May of 1999, and that's Star Wars Episode One: The Phantom Menace. Uh, and then we're gonna wrap it all up with our, our not wanting to give too much away about our movie, our our feelings about this movie. But the top five films that we own that we hate. I will not condone a course of action that will lead us to war. A communications disruption can mean only one thing: invasion. At last we will reveal ourselves to the Jedi. At last we will have revenge. Begin landing your troops. We haven't much time. The Federation has gone too far. The death toll is catastrophic. Our people are dying, Senator. We must do something quickly. You must contact me. There is something else behind all this, Your Highness. They will kill you if you stay. I can only protect you. I can't fight a war for you. I think we're going to have to accept Federation control for the time being. This is a battle I do not think that we can win. I will sign no treaty, Senator. You said people are gonna die? Once those droids take control of the surface, they will take control of you. I was not elected to watch my people suffer and die while you discuss this invasion in a committee. So, gentlemen, uh, I want to get to a question first, but I wanted to sort of, I love that we're going back to 1999 because I think it allows us to sort of talk about how movies have changed in the two decades uh, since then. And, you know, we can kind of think about thing, how, how the movies have evolved since then. And I, I think this is a great movie to look at uh, for a lot of reasons. But I want to take you guys back to the late 60s and early 70s first. Um and, of course, we are talking about the filmmaker George Lucas, who, you know, surprisingly, for being quite influential and important in the film world, doesn't come up a lot, actually, because he hasn't really directed that many movies. But um, Lucas was a part of that new Hollywood group, a lot of which who came out of uh, USC Film School. Um, he was close friends with, and I believe remains close friends with, Francis Ford Coppola. And together with a couple other filmmakers of this time, they started the film company American Zoetrope. And the idea behind American Zoetrope was that it was, you know, these guys wanted to, I think they had a couple bad studio experiences and wanted to have this, you know, revolutionary idea of like making their own movies and wanting to own their own movies and owning the means of production. Like I think about, um, I think that Coppola movie, The Rain People or something like that, um, they had this like movable bus or it was like a it was a bus or like an rv that had like all this editing equipment in it and film equipment and they just like ran around and made movies and you know it kind of was very much in line with the 60s and 70s era of that time and what people were sort of experiencing um 
And I think in many ways, uh, Coppola and um, American Zoetrope are examples of how not to do it because famously or infamously, Francis Ford, Coppola, Francis Ford Coppola has won and lost a couple of fortunes on the way. Um, now he is a very wealthy winemaker, but uh, at, his filmmaking business days were not quite as an exemplar of how to do it. Um, but Lucas, in the same in the same sort of uh, feeling, um, very famously uh, waived his directing directing fee, directing and writing fee for Star Wars in exchange to like you know own the negative and own the filmmaking and many different aspects of you know the rights to different things, um, and of course became a very very rich man because of it. Um, <clears throat> after 1997 or 1977, when he directs Star Wars, he takes a step back turns over the next two movies, Return of the Jedi and Empire Strikes Back, to other directors, even other writers. Um, he very much becomes a businessman. He has Lucasfilm, which uh, produced a bunch of movies, but um, you know, famously the Indiana Jones trilogy and a, a bunch of other famous movies. He starts, um, uh, he kind of invents or co-invents and, and funds the, the beginnings of what will become the first Nonlinear digital editing system that they eventually sell to Avid, which becomes the leader in nonlinear editing systems. Um, he starts with the company that eventually becomes Pixar and then sells it to, I believe, um, Apple um, or Steve Jobs, or I forget exactly. But he's very influential, but he, he essentially just takes a step back from filmmaking. He's still involved in writing and, direct, uh, and kind of producing, but he doesn't really direct. And so cut to... Uh, 1997, when he begins pre-production on The Phantom Menace, he is now a billionaire. He owns the uh, what what still remains, but yeah, and it was at that time the premier visual effects company in the world. Um, and together, they uh, be and and you 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 realize that he is probably in many ways the most powerful filmmaker alive. That that is all to say that I'm leading to a question. Eventually, I'm going to get to, which is that, uh, you know, I think as as film students and as um, um, as you know, fans of film, like this is the ideal situation, right? This is what filmmakers always dream of, like being able to really make any movie they want and doing whatever they want and owning it and and having all the power. But obviously, you know, that we weren't we weren't you know, holding back our feelings and our text messages leading up to this, this didn't work out. So my question to you guys is what happened? Well, wow. I, I think that's a good question. Because yeah. It's a long answer. Go ahead, Brantley. Well, I was going to say, there's always kind of been this idea of like, is, is it free reign or is it the constrictions that are put on you as an artist that really like uh, produces good art? And, you know, I, I think, you know, I wonder because you know when the when the code was in place, you saw all this amazing writing because they had to get around the barriers that were in place during during the code. So they would you know have this really snappy, witty dialogue that you know I don't know. It's not that we don't see any anymore, but we certainly don't see it to as large of an extent as we did in say the fifties and and things like that. Um, and so I do wonder really like, and and I'm starting to think that you know having actual restrictions put on you as an artist probably helps probably helps with the creative endeavor a little bit more because we've seen a lot not just with this but with other filmmakers where they've gotten free reign to make their passion project and it just doesn't come out that great so I, I I'm starting to lean more towards restrictions being a uh, better you know, a better, I don't know, factor when you, when it comes to the creative process. So can I ask you just to follow up, Brantley, do, mm -hmm. you, do you feel that, I mean, I guess what I think what I was trying to get out with my intro is that Lucas was very much separate. I mean, he didn't, he didn't answer to anybody. He wasn't answering to yeah. the studio system at all. Um, mm -hmm. He engaged 20th Century Fox to distribute the film, but you'll notice. I mean, I don't know if you guys notice this, but there's no Fox logo at the beginning of this movie anymore. It's just mm -hmm. Lucasfilm, so it was him. I mean, do you feel like that is a restriction that is that can still be creatively inspiring to people? Hmm. I mean, I, I, t I, I don't know. At least at this point, and I think that we'll come to it. The 
like simple answer to your question about what happened here. I mean, I think a lot of things went wrong, and I think Brantley's on to something where, you know, billionaire George Lucas decided he was going to continue this story that made him so rich, and there was nobody checking him. There were no checks and balances. I mean, his he like you said, he's a he's a businessman, and he owns uh, a visual effects company, and but he's not really a filmmaker. I think a lot of people would agree that that's directing and writing was never really his strength. I mean, mm-hmm. maybe, you know, story to a certain extent with the original Star Wars um, that he came up with. But, you know, you look at his strengths, how to how to make money and how to produce visual effects. And and that's all of, that this movie showcases. I mean, the, the making money piece is simple. Like, let's make a prequel to the Star Wars movies and we'll get into, you know, that aspect and people's reaction to that later and the visual effects that was always the biggest critique of this movie that it just went nuts and it was out of control i mean this movie is so excessive the the visual effects the sets the costumes the characters like it's just it's so overdone and i think that speaks a little bit to what brantley was saying it's a it's a freedom that you know hurts instead of helps jeremy talks about it a lot with giving great directors less money. I mean, Scorsese is totally guilty of fucking up his passion projects. Mm-hmm. Yes. But what I will say is that, I mean, you're right. And I know that you, Lee, in particular, are kind of critical of the Marvel movies. But, I mean, I went to go see uh, Endgame last weekend. And, you know, you look at what, you know, the behind the scenes of Endgame and and what other movies look like and and it's basically what the Star Wars sets look like 20 years ago which is like you've built the setup to about 10 feet and the rest of it is surrounded by green screen and a lot of times you're acting towards a tennis ball or acting towards you know um, Josh Brolin dressed up in a ridiculous suit with like a a big letter ahead um, you know 10 feet tall and like um I mean, I guess my point is that that this 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 movie. I mean, yes, like it, it was over. I agree with your criticism, but it also kind of ushered in this new era of 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 of, of movies. And not that that's like a good thing necessarily, but I mean, it, it's like something happened that it it struck a chord somewhere. Well, I have a theory there, and and this is something that I wanted to bring up, and I think it ties in nicely. Is is I, and maybe this isn't the first one you guys maybe think can think of some examples, but to me it feels like Phantom Menace was one of the first movies to basically say, you know what, let's take an existing successful property and either continue it, remake it, you know, refranchise it, however you want to put it. And, and I mean, that's only grown exponentially over the next 20 years, and Marvel's a perfect example. I mean, my biggest critique... Over, uh, over everything else with Mar- the Marvel movies is that they're doing just the bare minimum to make the, the, the huge box office uh, money. And they could make better movies if they wanted to, but they're just good enough. They're not all terrible. And, you know, I don't know what... I haven't even looked what uh, Endgame has made, but I'm sure it's uh, outrageous. But that's that's what they need to do. And, and a little bit like I was saying, like Phantom Menace... Basically, you, you know, you could have put anything on screen. If you said, here comes episode one of the Star Wars series, this was going to make a ton of money. So I think that that idea of, you know, a built-in audience began here. And if you only look at it from that perspective, we have a built-in audience, you might cut some corners and maybe that's what r- went wrong and they they felt like they didn't need the perfect script they didn't need to get the right actors they didn't need to make sure that all the characters in the movie made sense and that the visual effects were under control because they knew regardless of what we put on screen you know this is going to make money um i think that leads nicely into your question brantley so do you want to hit us with that yeah well when we were kind of throwing around ideas before recording um I was kind of wondering if it's, is it even possible to review episode one as its own film, or do you have to look at it in the grander scope of Star Wars in general? I mean, I, I I don't really know. I'm still, it's still a question I'm even pondering. I don't know if we really can divorce it from the Star Wars lore. Um, I mean, we can certainly talk about aspects of the filmmaking, but 
I mean, the reason we're talking about this as one of the movies from 1999 is because it's episode one, The Phantom Menace. If this was some unknown property that came out and was not great like it isn't, I don't think we'd be reviewing it as one of the movies of 1999. Well, I think that's a great question. I mean, I I thought of what Jeremy often says, a movie is a movie is a movie, and I think that's not a fair way to look at this film, um, given what you and Lee just said. Um, But Lee, what were were you going to say? Well, what's what I think I, I, I sort of agree with Brantley. Like I think you have to judge this movie within the context of the Star Wars series. And I have a couple reasons for that. And one is, you know, I was I turned this movie on and like you said, Chapin, you don't really get anything except the Lucasfilms logo and then you get the um a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, and then the music starts, and there's nothing quite like the opening of a Star Wars movie. I'm not a huge Star Wars fan, but like I do get a little chill with those openings. Mm-hmm. And I just kind of pictured myself in 1999, you know, being, if, if I were a bigger Star Wars fan, I'm sure I saw these in the theater, but imagining myself as a, a big Star Wars fan, sitting in the theater and that opening comes on like the excitement must have just been through the roof i can't imagine how people felt the only i I wrote this down the only comparison i can really think of is is that people after like the four years or so when they first heard that get your film fix podcast music when we came back oh yeah like (laughs) something something along those lines just to kind of give you an idea what i'm thinking but um like that excitement must have just been out of control to see that opening and be like okay like I've seen this opening a million times, but this is a new story. This is something I've never seen before. We're going to, this is a new Star Wars movie. And then to leave with the disappointment that everybody must have had for so many reasons. And the other piece of why I think it's important to judge this movie in the context of the series is because of the character of Anakin. Like he's only interesting because we know who he becomes and they totally Mm -hmm. fucked that up. But Mm -hmm. That's that has to be the biggest part of this story, and knowing who he is and like the conversations you hear about like who this kid could be, but no, and we know we know the end, we know what happens, like that's really big. So, if you separate this movie from the Star Wars movie, then that's it's almost maybe what they did as filmmakers because it feels inconsequential, and that's how it feels watching this movie. I wonder how much of that is a choice to make prequels as opposed to sequels, though. Like, if you're going in with prequels, then you're right. We already know who Anakin is going to become. So a lot of the time that he's on screen, you're like, you know, what's the point with so much of this when we know what's ultimately going to happen? What I wonder if he had made sequels instead, if that would have, you know, I don't know. It just in some way kind of heightened stakes because we don't know where everything is going. Right. I mean, I mean, I guess you can argue about this, but it seems like the sequels have sort of been received better i mean that's probably for a mm. number of reasons but yeah um well they definitely have but that's yeah. <laughs> i mean they have their detractors but overall yeah. as films they're certainly received better yeah but i mean i like the idea of knowing who anakin becomes i think that that's an amazing like storytelling tool that you can take advantage of like you you have some some basically some built-in drama there like i think about when he leaves his mother to become a Jedi, like that should be a, that should be one of the biggest scenes in the entire series of Star Wars. <laughs> it's just yeah. so, yeah. and it's, it's so, so wooded and just yeah. Oh God! I mean, so let's get into it, guys. Like this, I mean, uh, you, you this wa- movie fucking sucks. Like it, it's <laughs> it's bad. It is not good, man. But like, let's, I'm trying to put my finger on like what what is it exactly? Because like. You know, listen, I, I mean, and Brantley, I would like to know before we get into it too deep, your relationship with Star Wars, but I was a fucking, mm-hmm. and am, still am a huge Star Wars fan. I grew up, I own, it's like one of the only VHSs I owned was the box set of the original Star Wars movies, you know, <laughs> Take, before two Letterboxd. Discs, two, two tapes per movie. <laughs> yeah, there's like, it was <laughs> yep. a bunch of tapes. They had an extra tape, which had, which had a great making of documentary that I just, I mean, I wore those things out, you know? Mm-hmm. Um and uh, I, I was such a huge fan. Um, and, you know, I was just, I think I must have been, I was just starting high school, right? When, when this movie came out and it was a <laughs> I huge like how this is like the fifth 1999 movie we reviewed. We still we can't just... figure out how old we were. <laughs> <laughs> no, like we, yeah, right. Um, 
and and I mean I was I think I I must have just been ready to start high school, and so it was a time when you know maybe you were throwing away your childish you know passions, but I was still super excited to see this as a, as like a lot of geeks were. I remember I watched this the do- at the end of the documentary they cut to they show some footage from the the you know the opening day of the of this and there's like people lightsaber fighting in the movie theater and like <laughs> everybody's dressed in the costumes without having seen the movie like people are wearing you know queen abadala costumes and like they hadn't even seen the movie at that point um, uh-huh. boy were they were in for a surprise so so brantley real quickly yeah. what is your are, are you a bigger star wars fan than say lee is um, you know, I'd say I'm, I definitely probably fall between you two. I don't think I was as crazy big a fan as you, Chapin. I certainly loved the movies growing up and was a big fan. I'm pretty sure I owned them on VHS as well and watched them. And I know I went and saw this in theaters and, and all three of them, really. Um, but I, but it sounds like I wasn't as big of a fan as you were. Okay, I, I Ner- definitely was a big Ner- Star Wars Chapin. fan. Well, that's, yeah, I was thinking, like, you know, we've got back to the old, like, Chapin's a, a movie nerd because the boys had, you know, Carl Yastrzemski and all that bullshit, you know, growing up. So I had to ha- invent yeah. my own okay. heroes. <laughs> oh, Speaking of not knowing you. how old we are, <laughs> uh, uh, I loved watching Carl Yastrzemski in 1994. Yeah. <laughs> Ted Williams. Um, yeah. <laughs> okay. So, so yeah, but then, I don't know. So just kind of to answer my own question, I mean, I, I, and I hate, I'm sorry to keep going back to this documentary, but like I... I, I I felt like after watching this, I had a lot of sympathy for Lucas, who just got like a ra- a ration of shit for this for this these this trilogy. You know, like he hadn't mm-hmm. directed since Star Wars, and he came comes back, and in his defense, he he went to Steven Spielberg, he went to Robert Zemeckis, he went to Ron Howard, and asked them all to help him make these movies, like direct these movies, but they wouldn't or couldn't or whatever. Yeah, they probably read the script mm-hmm. and they're like, fuck that. <laughs> um, <laughs> And, well, and and he wanted to make them for his kids, right? Like he had kids at this point, right? He had adopted and everything. Yeah, so. and like, and and that's the thing is like he seems like a really, you know, for being a man who like literally, I mean, uh, you know, most billionaires are kind of evil people. I mean, he he made something that people love, and mm-hmm. was well rewarded for it. And he actually seems like a quite a humble, nice, a little awkward, nerdy guy. But like, I mm-hmm. I kind of felt sympathetic for him. Um, and and you watch him like the the early the early parts of this documentary are the design phase of it, and it's like it's so cool to see them like designing this movie, like all the characters, and he's got this team of like creative people, and he works really well with them. But then I just I watched another. I think like they released some like what they were the first some of the first people to like release making of documentaries like during the production of the movie like on the web. Um, and I, he g- gives a piece of direction to somebody, maybe like Samuel L. Jackson or something, and. It was so bad. I mean, as someone who like works with <laughs> actors and thinks a lot about like how to how to talk to people like that, like I, I I do that sometimes, and I'm not the greatest at it either. But like he gave this piece of direction that was just broke every rule that you're supposed to do as a as a director. Like read the line to him, said you know don't do this, you know, and it, it was just it was like incomprehensible. And you and he admittedly like doesn't like working with actors. Like famously, he you know is not someone who likes to work with actors, and it shows like every performance is so wooden like you've got these great actors you've got you've got um uh, uh liam neeson you've got ewan mcgregor natalie portman um and and they're just there's it's as if they shot the rehearsal and printed the rehearsal it's like you know just do it half speed and then we'll we'll uh we'll we'll, we'll go we'll fix full it blast. <laughs> yeah it will yeah. go full but, and, but like you say that lee that's really funny like he did do that. He would like yeah. he would like chop up frames and put different performances in different areas because he had the power tell. of visual effects behind him. And it's like, well, yep. why didn't you guys just and you watch a take and it's like these awkward like there's they they the one example in the documentary they give this is is like there's awkward timing of like somebody sitting down um and to drive a ship uh and the timing is all off and i'm like it was very obvious from the take that it was bad why don't you guys just shoot another one and it's like i don't like i think some people just like it's easier for them to live in the edit room you know and so instead of stopping production and and shooting another take they just and (laughs) it's just i don't know well i i I will go even further than that and say that it begins with the script of this movie. I mean, I mentioned the, you know, lack of impact when Anakin leaves his mother and maybe that 
also has to do with the way the scene was shot and the acting and everything. But, I mean, there's a lot of things here. I mean, there, and I guess maybe this goes to the the filmmaking as well as the script, but the the connection and the relationship between Anakin and, and Queen Amidala is just totally absent. I mean, this is, we're supposed mm-hmm. to believe that they are in love come the next movie. Um, and then some more like nitpicky things, I guess. I mean, I don't know how nitpicky this is, but Jar Jar Banks, which obviously is a to- like much maligned character in cinema history, but he serves no purpose. Like I always thought it was just that he was annoying. Like he serves no purpose in this movie. And mm-hmm. then another thing that I just was really kind of disappointed in is Darth Maul was so wasted. I mean, that was kind of a cool villain. And he has, like, no dialogue. And I guess I read today that that uh, Benicio Del Toro was cast as that and left yeah. the project because there was no lines of dialogue. And I was just like, good for him. Like, mm-hmm. that that was, I mean, that was an interesting villain. And something that Star Wars has always done pretty well is have interesting villains. And, like, you know torn villains, tortured villains, like characters that have uh, more than one side that you learn about. I mean, we're seeing that a ton now with the new ones and um, Adam Driver's character. Um, help me out. Kylo Nerds. Ren. Kylo Ren. Kylo Ren. And then, of course, Darth Vader and Anakin and, and everything there. But Darth Maul, like, what's... Uh, <laughs> he's pointless. So, like, these are all script issues that I think we began with and then all that stuff you mentioned Chapin just builds on top of that and then I mean god this movie has fucking fart jokes like well, I guess that, yeah he's making it for his kids I guess but that's come the thing, on is that you mm. you you take a you deconstruct the movie and you you mentioned this like Jar Jar Banks is 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 literally just like a um a slapsticky. I mean, the, his the whole point of that character is that he is like a slapsticky, clumsy, um, you know, Jamaican baby. Yeah, entity <laughs> that's you know slightly racist. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. and uh, not the character, but the imagination of him. Yeah. Uh, come to life is racist, and um, you know, he just gets himself into trouble, and that gag plays throughout. It's ne- you know, it's never funny, and they don't let let that gag go, and and um. Another thing is, you know, you 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 watch that last um, that last battle, and a lot of that happens with, you know, much of that clumsiness manifests itself in that battle, and the the te- the, t- the tables are turned because of Jar Jar's clumsiness, and the same goes for um, Anakin in um, in. Uh, his space fighter, like it's almost all accidental, and like he blows that ship up that you know just that deactivates all the droids almost accidentally, and it's like yeah. th- like you you're just you've just essentially you know nullified the power of your of your movies. Like this was never <laughs> yeah. part of Star Wars before. I mean, yes, th- mm-hmm. these were these were movies that I think were uh, aimed at kids, but these were adults. Like you know, and it was it was a it was about a revolution and like it had stakes and meaning and not that this doesn't, but like the the tables of this giant space opera are turned based on like accidents and clumsiness. Like this is ridiculous. And it it just it yeah. takes all the power and weight out of that um out of the movie and and yeah, like why do that? You know, like what 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 was the goal of that? Like, to, is that to appeal more to kids? Like, are these like six year olds in the front row who whose legs like, are barely losing it? Yeah, yeah. Like, oh, Jar Jar's so funny. I mean, I it, like what's the point of that? I mean, and I think like the films get more serious. Like, and I also feel like they get sort of better as as they go on. You know, like, mm-hmm. um, but this one especially, it's just, oh. I, I I don't understand his decision to do that. Yeah, I mean it was it's just, it was just an exhausting experience watching the film because it feels like it was like the worst decision possible. After uh, you know at each opportunity, it was pretty much the worst you know choice you could make going throughout the film. And I agree. I mean you know Darth Maul is completely wasted. There's like three lines of dialogue i think does he i don't um, even remember a line that he has yeah he I think does there's like three. and then he, also yeah. his death is so anticlimactic yeah well as yeah. we know it's not his death oh it isn't i don't know <laughs> you didn't see but, solo yeah. lee come on sorry oh i did not see solo um but, yeah i mean it's just it's there's 
you know, there's all this talk of like Anakin and his abilities and stuff, and you briefly see him, I guess, sort of using. Do you? Art. Oh, well, that's what I was thinking. Like the pod race beforehand, Qui Gon tells him, like, you know, go by your feeling, go by your intuition, you know, whatever, yeah. like alluding to the Force. And I was think I was about to say I don't think he ever uses it, but then I I kind of was trying to kind of <laughs> maybe you know play it safe and say you really only see it in the pod race but thinking back to it i don't know if we ever do really see him like you know you know connect with the force in some way and and that like helps him with what he does i i don't think there was in the pod race unless i'm forgetting it well he has the one scene with the jedi council where he's like telling them what pictures they have yeah he can't oh yes i'm like that's right like uh (laughs) yeah <laughs> like, yeah, I, I did forget it. about that. Then they're all looking at each other, be like, "Oh, he's good." Qui-Gon no, but Brantley, right. you're, Brantley, you're absolutely right, though. Like, like the whole their 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 entire involvement with Anakin taking Anakin off of Tatooine is that he somehow exhibits his some sort of uh, you know power of the Force, and he, but but. We only, I mean, literally breaking that show don't tell rule. Like literally, we just we don't see it at all. We mm-hmm. just hear Qui Gon say, "Yeah, he can see things before they happen," and like uh, he, you know, he literally just tells us. But we like, I mean, the kid's not a good actor, and also like no. we don't. There's nothing in the screenplay that shows us that he has any of these, you know, uh, amazing abilities. We don't see it. Yeah, and I mean, to your point, you know, at the ship at the end, it, it it is just by like accident that he's like <laughs> like shooting out right. like the the energy be- where, where they were getting their power source and like taking out of the ships. It was like that would be a perfect place to use the force as well, and it just it seems completely by accident that he's doing all these things. Um, I I want to ask you guys another thing. I don't want to I don't want to focus too much on the mechanics of this movie, but I'm just blown away by it. Like mm-hmm. they, you hear in this documentary that they searched the world over. For an Anakin Skywalker, oh, um, I know. and this kid is so—I mean, I don't want to harp on him. But like, I as a, as just a side note, I did some research on this movie. Yeah, his life is like totally like, turned his upside life down. Yeah. fell apart because of it, and he was, yeah. um, and and so did the 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 uh, the actor who played Jar Jar Binks, Ahmed Best. Like, was mm-hmm. thinking was you know considering suicide, um, and like it's—I I feel the like the intention that, of this movie. No, I, I I feel like you know. I feel like especially maybe Jake Lloyd is to blame, but I feel like especially with Jar Jar Binks that that was just a bad character from Lucas's point of view and mostly his problem. Um, but I, I do have to ask you guys, like when they say things like that, we looked around the world for this character. I mean, this movie proves to me that, you know, you just didn't look hard enough. There are so many talented mm-hmm. children actors out there. I mean, you look at, the uh, not spoiler alert, but for like the some of the younger characters in Game of Thrones, how how sort of amazing those actors are, and um, mm-hmm. I, I I was just I, I don't know I don't know how you land with all the resources at Lucas's disposal. I don't know how you land at this pivotal character and cast someone like that. Yeah, and he's he's acting opposite Natalie Portman, who's been acting since she was a really young child. Yeah. I mean, she's older at this point, but it, you know, she was a great, talented, uh, you know, child actor as well. It's you're right. I don't want to harp on him because obviously, you know, I've heard too how how rough his life has been. But it is just a, he's just so wooden and so awful. There's Lee mentioned the lack of chemistry. It's like there's negative chemistry here. It's almost like there's like it's almost like he dislikes. Queen Amidala and the scenes he has with her. I mean, it's yeah, it's it's bad. Well, I don't know. I I want to blame Jake Lloyd so badly because he is just god awful. I mean, every line is mm-hmm. wooden. But you know, you bring up Game <laughs> of Thrones and you bring up Game of Thrones and the good you know uh, good performances from child actors in that and and Game of Thrones wasn't just luckier or something like they found. I, I think this is a directing thing. I mean, we've talked about Lucas isn't a director. And he's probably definitely not an actor's director. He's certainly not an actor's director. I mean, we can look at Mark Hamill in the original Star Wars there. Uh, But, you know, you need a good actor's director, and specifically sometimes one that's good with kids. Um, You know, think about the original Harry Potter movies. I don't know if you guys have ever seen those, but Chris Columbus directed those. And, you know, I think a lot of the thought process there was we're going to have child actors. We need somebody who can work with kids. I mean, Chris Columbus directed the first two, and then they went to Alfonso Cuaron. 
<laughs> I mean, mm-hmm. like they totally, you know, changed direction. So you need a director that can work with an actor, and I th- especially one that young. And I think that's where so much more blame belongs. I mean, you know, that's like the, you said, it looked like they shot the rehearsals. That's such a great point because, like, uh, of of Harry Potter being a great example of how you know you cast like a ten, eight or nine or ten year old kid in a movie these days, and you know they could be playing that character, you know, into their twenties. I mean, that's you know the Harry Potter people are probably the easiest example, but there's other examples of that. The Game of Thrones kids are like yeah. that as well. Like they come of age on screen, and like you have to both be careful enough to cast a kid who can act, but also think about how they're going to grow into a real, you know, working actor. Um, and boy, uh, I can't imagine what that would be like now if they had waited for him to come of age. I mean, Jesus. Um, well, let's move on. Is there anything else you guys wanted to mention from this film? Um, no, I mean, we covered a lot. I mean, you, you know, I just think, like, I th- my biggest takeaway, I mentioned it, was, and in, in, it kind of is, it, it's interesting because it, it compares a little bit to, like, these actors getting cast. But, like, you think about, like I said, being a fan, sitting down, the opening of this movie, and just being so much, having so much excitement. And then you think about, like, this kid, and then Ahmad Best, and, like, all these guys sort of being cast in, a, like, a Star Wars movie. Like, that is, like, ultimate actor's dream, and it fucking ruined their lives. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, that's not the way that this should have been. Like, we, you know, we are sitting here griping about how this was such a huge disappointment for us, but this movie was so bad that it ruined actors' lives. Well, that's, like, <laughs> that's a great point, because I think, you know, I was, in my intro, talks a little bit about how this is kind of a harbinger for the you know, for the visual effects era of movies, and, and you can very much see it in, you know, movies of today, that this is sort of the blueprint for how to put a movie like that together, but also it's it's really the first example of, like, the internet, like, reaction to a movie and how yeah. kind of powerful that can be, and mm-hmm. you see that, like, the blowback from this film... I just remember... That's something I remember very much, you know, it was in the sort of fledgling days of the internet, but it was... Just like, you know, the fans were very vocal. And I think, you know, suddenly you're cast in this film and it's not like it was in the 70s when, you know, you 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 didn't have a, you know, people didn't have a voice. <laughs> they, they, they only had to, to bet with their dollars or rather, you know, endorse with their dollars. You know, and now you these these people's lives are ruined because every every fan has their has their voice. And um I think you see that a lot now. I mean, we've got Star Wars, the, this this saga coming to an end this year. Game of Thrones is ending, and kind of this Avengers storyline is ending. And like these are huge fan based, you know, storylines that I think are arguably very strongly influenced by that collective voice of of the fans. And you see them kind of working out their um the you know the sort of the the the, the reactions um in the films and or, or, or the tv show in the case of game of thrones and i think i think lucas did that a little bit but <laughs> i don't know you know he needed to do it better yeah i, I wonder if looking back if he kind of just because lucas has always seen more of like a, a a tech like he's always been on the forefront of technology not just like in the filmmaking world, but you know, all the way back to Star Wars, that was groundbreaking when it came out. But you're right, like you mentioned, he's never really likes working with actors. It, writing has always been a struggle for him, and I wonder if he maybe looking back just sort of wished that he had, you know, I guess maybe handed the series off, not rights wise, but just let other people make Star Wars stories that he could approve of and use his technology and, well, it sounded and like pre- he tried a producer. To. I mean, he did with yeah, the originals, but, with the with uh, Empire Strikes Back and Return of the Jedi. Yeah, but he did write these stories. Yeah. I, I guess what I'm saying is, like, if he maybe like let it be known that others in the film industry, if they were interested in making Star Wars stories, he'd be open to hearing them and like maybe getting on as a producer and using this technology. But you know, obviously, he wrote these. He he felt like he had like a story to tell. And I wonder if looking back, he kind of maybe wishes he'd kind of, you know, took more of a back uh, a back seat role in in the continuing story of star wars yeah i think that would have been really interesting and i mean i think i think what's also especially kind of poignant about that is that they've i think kathy kennedy attempted to do that with this new 
trilogy they're the final trilogy mm-hmm. and i think especially when you compare it to disney's other properties the marvel films like it, it is kind of lacking or one criticism is it's kind of lacking a through line but um you're right like with the with the first with the star wars empire strikes back return of the jedi there it felt very much like cohesive despite the fact that it was written by different people and directed by different people i think his influence as kind of like an overseer was was quite strong like i think you know he was on set and i mean i read a lot that he basically directed return of the jedi but um mm. you know that didn't i don't you know there a lot of criticism criticism is that the ha- like there hasn't that hasn't really worked for um um the new star wars films and you know they're going back to jj abrams and i'm excited to see how that turns out but like it's I just think it's very interesting because it like we talk a lot about, you know, directors on the show and and we love you know seeing directors really work unencumbered and I was think I was listening I was trying to like juice up for these things by listening to the podcast on my walk in and I was re-listening to our uh PTA podcast and like so much of what PTA does is like you know, kind of anti the fans. Like you, you, you know, it's, it's like he, he just is going to yeah, make Phantom the film. Thread. <laughs> yeah. He's going to make the film that he wants to make. And, um, you know, his films are, as we discussed, are not particularly successful and, and often lose money. Um, but we admire him so much. And I, I, I just think it's, it's interesting to think about the role of the, of the director in these films. And I feel like, <sighs> You know, in in the in this sort of age that I feel like the Phantom Menace ushered in, um, you see these. I, I, I admire directors like the Russo brothers for like, um, you know, finding a way to stand out amongst um, amongst you know th- th- these these films, um, but they aren't auteurs in the way that at least Lucas started to be, you know, and the idea right. of what a director is these days and working on this scale, it's a different, it's a totally different world. And, um, it, it's, you know, you're basically judged by, you know, taking the format of the modern blockbuster and making it just a little bit more original instead of saying, um, Hey, like, let's do an original idea. Um, I was listening to another podcast and an anecdote stood out for me where somebody went to had a meeting at um, Legendary Pictures, which I think produced a bunch of the Batman movies. And they they um, had a deal with Warner Brothers and kind of made these big event movies. And they basically said, like, we're not interested in hearing about original content. Like if unless you own a property, we don't we're not really interested in making anything like that. And if that's like the where we are right now, you know, you like there's not going to be any Star Wars like like we forget that the first Star Wars was like that was an original idea. And yeah, Mm -hmm. you know, the reason he's a billionaire is because he got so many points and a percentage of the cut. He owns it. He owns the movie. He owns it. Yeah. He and he owns it. Yeah. Um, I I have one final question that we don't need to spend a lot of time on, but it's kind of what you were just mentioning Chapin do you guys think it's I guess two-part question do you guys think episode one two and three will they'll ever take another shot at them and remake them and do you think that those would be accepted no you don't think they'll ever do it no yeah I don't they definitely wouldn't remake one and I doubt two I, I I wouldn't put it past them to try to redo Anakin's origin story but I I would be when he was older not this not when he's younger and, sure, and yeah you know that yeah because three yeah. kind of in the line of like solo and um yeah rogue, rogue one that that trilogy or that series yeah exactly yeah I, I could see them maybe redoing the story of three or parts of that story because that's closer you know obviously that's when he kind of makes the turn but yeah I, I doubt with one and two see i i guess i doubt it too but i actually feel like we're getting to a point where they're going to be long enough ago and everything is remade everything is redone like people don't even bat an eye at it anymore and i actually think that it would be sort of welcomed i mean totally new scripts recast who you need to recast obviously some people have you know through lines the the guy who uh, ian mcdarmid who's the same age for the last 40 years he would just keep playing the emperor um <laughs> yeah just but, unfreeze uh, him <laughs> yeah yeah but uh i mean i just think i honestly like i would be i would be welcome to it and i would i think it would be interesting to see Oh, actually, before we move yeah. on from stars, we should say R.I.P. Peter Mayhew. Oh, who yeah, passed away yeah. Just a couple of days ago, yeah. uh, the actor who played Chewbacca. 
Um, yeah, disappointing. Very sad to hear. Very sad. Yeah, and he did get the opportunity to play that character, I think, a little bit in the most recent movies, which is nice. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so for our top five this week, we uh, we all had to, I believe, buy this movie in order to see it, which was particularly weird, right? Like, why can't you rent <laughs> Attack? Yeah. Why can't you rent The Phantom Menace? But it was 20 Because you bucks. can rent the, you can rent, like, uh, the new ones. Yeah. Like, sometimes they'll mm-hmm. do that when there's new ones coming out because they figure they can get an extra buck because people are going to want to, you know, catch up. Yeah. But, yeah, this, I thought well, that was Well, who knows? Strange. Maybe Disney hasn't got around to, like, figuring out how to package these things yet. But, um, anyway, so we had to buy this movie, and um, we thought we would do the uh, top five most embarrassing movies we own or bad movies that we own. Um and I'll just start with my criteria. I just pulled mine from like the digital copies that I've had to buy. Um, I have a lot of embarrassing movies, but I'm not gonna go. I mean, I'm not like Yuli. I don't have my DVDs on display because I, you know, that's embarrassing. <laughs> um, I don't watch it's DVDs anymore. I don't I have know where they DVDs. are. Well, you do, but you, know, you shouldn't be watching DVDs anymore. It's <laughs> disgusting. Um, oh, so uh, I'm, we're going back. So I, I will. Um, my criteria is all from like things that I've embarrassingly bought on digital, which is just too easy these days. And so has manifested into a bunch of bad movies that I've bought. Uh, and then a lot of them are also from the get your film fix library that I had to buy in order to do a podcast. So, Oh, come on. We're, we're a prestigious podcast here. We don't review bad movies. This one, notwithstanding. True. Um, uh, Brantley, why don't you kick us off and give us your criteria? Sure. Well, I don't mean to break your heart, Chapin, but I have my DVDs and Blu-rays out on shelves as well on display. Well, I, mean, I think Lee, most people so. do. <laughs> yeah, th- yeah, exactly. I know, guys, but like, start replacing them with your Blu-rays and your, and your 4K <laughs> Blu-rays. I mean, come on, guys. That, that, that technology is older than the Phantom Menace. <laughs> oh, jeez. Well, uh, anyway, so actually I didn't need to buy this because I had the six Blu-ray set of oh, uh, my Star God, Wars. Wow. Which, but, well, you bought but, it you know, at one time. Why, <laughs> I did, but it was like fifteen dollars at a pawn shop for the whole set. So I mean, it was pretty darn cheap, quite honestly. That was six, that's actually that's less than things... what I paid for this one. Yeah. Yeah. Jeez. <laughs> Could have got six movies well, that, for that. Well, that's why I still like DVD and Blu-ray. I can pick them up so cheap now. People have like completely devalued them. But anyway, so uh, my criteria. Um, I had to have actually seen the movie. Uh, there's a bunch of movies I own because they're like in sets with multiple movies. So like I haven't seen them. That sort of thing. Um, and also, I try to take into account, like, I don't know, you know, if like how much support the film had. Like, if it came from a major studio and things like that, and it still like was garbage, as opposed to someone who obviously had a lot of passion for something that they were making independently. I kind of, I guess, factored that into my decision. Now that being said, my number five is Plan Nine from Outer Space from uh, Ed Wood. So, <laughs> I was so excited for your list, Brantley, because I knew you'd have some like real gems. So I, uh, I haven't seen that, Brantley. Is that like just legitimately a bad movie, or is there is it oh, fun to watch at all? I mean, it's fun to watch because it's so bad. I mean, it, but it's it's awful. I mean, I have the whole Ed Wood box set, quite honestly, and it's just. I mean, all of his all of his movies are bad, but this is it's. It, it is a fun watch, probably not alone. I mean, you probably want to have, like, a group of people there yeah. and lots of alcohol to enjoy it. But, uh, yeah, it's awful. I th- I'm trying to remember if it was on Mystery Science Theater 3000 and that's the first time I watched it or or I just, you know, came across it outside of that show. But, yeah, it's it's famously an awful sci-fi film. Oh, man. Okay. Well, I will <laughs> go on my number five. Again, again. Uh, Going back to my criteria, these are things, you know, these mo- digital movies are... Actually, I should say there's one exception on here that is a DVD. Um, uh, but I, it's all too... E- I love iTunes. I love the ability to, like, rent and buy pretty much any movie that you'd like. But it often gets me into trouble because I spend dumb money on stuff. But I just was really <laughs> in the mood to watch Cliffhanger. And I could not oh, find it digital- movie. <laughs> digitally. And, uh, I mean, it is a good movie, but, like, it's also a really bad movie. Oh, my God, um, yeah. And it's it's so much fun to watch, but I think it kind of falls into that Plan Nine from Outer Space category, where like, you know, <laughs> so they, they, I yeah. I don't understand why you bought this because this movie is on TV every day. Well, I don't have <laughs> I don't have cable anymore, so I, you know, I... <laughs> Rennie Harlan, Rennie Harlan, yeah, these are the what, days of Rennie Harlan. The, what the, a coincidence! <laughs> what is your number five, Lee? Well, I should say, you know, Cutthroat I'll, I'll... Island. 
Well, I'll say that I, you know, I don't really buy DVDs anymore, and I was kind of going through Good. my DVD collection, and I was like, oh, you know, I really don't own a lot of bad ones, um, but I wanted to, you know, expand my options here, so I, I, I included any movies that I know that I have once owned. So I included mm. what you know are either in my parents' attic or were donated at one time, some VHSs um, that I just don't happen to have at my house anymore, but I know that I owned them. Um, in some way, shape, or form. But my number five I'm doing as a tie because it's not really my fault that I own these movies. They are part of a series of which the first movie is very good, but it's Jurassic Park 3 and Rennie Harlan's Die Hard 2. Oof. Uh Which (laughs) might be worse than Jurassic Park 3. Uh, Disagree. Die Hard 2 is pretty bad. Die Hard 2 it, is it so is, bad. But Jurassic Park 3 is bad. Jurassic Park 3 is basically this, like, they ran out of ideas. What, what was funny, and I don't know how I stumbled across this, but if you look at if you look at Jurassic Park, The Lost World, and then the two new um, Jurassic World movies, they are all, mm-hmm. like, two hours and seven minutes, like, almost identical, like, two hours, six minutes, or two hours, seven minutes. Jurassic Park 3 is like an hour and 27 minutes. Yeah. Because <laughs> they had wow. nothing to tell. <laughs> they had no story. <laughs> All right, Brantley, gotcha. why don't you hit us with your number four? All right, well, speaking of ties, my number four is a tie as well. Again, I would never have bought these films, but they came in a set. Um, I have the uh, Halloween uh, Blu-ray set uh, of like... Uh, all of the original films, but it also includes Rob Zombie's Halloween and Halloween Two, oh, which I l- load the load. Those oh, really? I thought out. that they were supposed to yeah. be pretty good. Um, some people like them. I was not a fan. I mean, now, granted, I have not revisited them since they first came out. I think that was like oh seven and oh nine or something like that. Um, but I hated them uh, and just was not a fan of it at all. Um, so those are my number four. Okay, that's great. I like um, looking at these meta scores here. Just just going through forty seven for Halloween. Oh yeah. Um, well, this was another impulse buy that I was like, I really wanted to see the film. There was no way to do it, and it ties in very much with uh, the Phantom Menace because it is, of course, the sequel to the Phantom Menace, and it's Episode Two: Attack of the Clones, which I believe mm-hmm. I own on. It might be a Blu-ray actually. Um, I can't imagine that I bought a DVD of that, but um, uh, so yeah. Uh, the you know I I I often I think that I thought this was a worse movie than Phantom Menace, but I think after having watched <laughs> Phantom Menace twice for this podcast recently, it's it's just a little bit better. But um, yeah, uh, yeah. So that's my number four. Every time this is such a side note, but every time I hear somebody mention Attack of the Clones, all I hear. Is that line in Superbad when Bill Hader's like, are you familiar with Star Wars, Attack of the Clones? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Okay, Lee, what's your number four? All right, my number four pains me to put this on here. And Chapin, I know you've maybe softened on this movie uh, over the last uh, couple years, maybe. Martin Scorsese's Gangs of New York is my number four. I remember watching this shortly after I... I uh, bought it and like literally convincing myself so much that it was good and I it was I was justified in buying it that I even like texted or whatever the version of texting was at that time maybe AOL instant message Jeremy and being and said like exactly that I'm like Gangs of New York is good I'm glad I bought it I'm like talk about convincing myself <laughs> Jesus Christ <laughs> and I'm like no it's not Daniel Day Lewis no. is good that's the reason I bought it. <laughs> And this was no, when I DVDs just, uh, cost like $35 too. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> yeah, I just, uh, my, the class I teach just finished up and one of the students, their final paper was on Gangs of New York. So I was just like, oh, Jesus. <laughs> the, uh, F. It's a, it, it, yeah. <laughs> well, it's a Hollywood history class. So they actually, they examine the film not on how good the film is, but how good it like can accurately kind of portray history F. essentially. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, the film definitely gets an F. The, the paper got slightly better than that. Um, my number three. Uh, so this was not originally part of a set, but it's a part of a series. And the completionist in me just like had to, I guess, own the film as part of the Friday the 13th series. But it's the ninth one, which is Jason Goes to Hell, 
which starts introducing these like supernatural reasons why Jason can do what he can do besides just being like a stalking, you know, killer. And it's, it's, it's awful. It's, it is not good. It's very bad. Um, one, I just had another side note. No, one, nothing's going to beat that 17 on Metascore. No. <laughs> one summer, um, Tyson, a fan of this podcast and often a contributor to it in the old days, uh, and I were working out at my uncle's place in Weston, Massachusetts, and he, in his masochism, forced me to watch the entire Friday the 13th series from start to finish. Um, during that one summer, and uh, each movie was worse than the than the last one, and uh, I don't think I enjoyed one minute of it. But I don't for some for some reason I allowed that completism to take place. <laughs> <laughs> Would you agree that that one's the worst? Is that the one all? where he like literally is in hell? Yeah, pretty I think much. that one is pretty I, bad. I, I, they sort of all blend together there at the end. Well, it's it's been a while since I've seen it, but it, like towards the beginning, he like gets killed in the shootout with like cops, I believe, like literally like, exploded. But his heart, it, something with his heart and supernatural. I don't know. It, it was how many it of these awful. movies are there? Like nine. There's technically eleven films in the Jason franchise if you include Freddy vs. Jason, because Jason, oh, yeah, Jason X was the tenth one, and then Freddy vs. Jason. That does not include the Friday the Thirteenth remake that they did right. in the two thousands. There. Jesus. Um, yeah. Yeah. Ugh, okay. <laughs> moving on. <laughs> yeah, that's so I think that one's three. Right? That one's gonna be tough to beat. <laughs> um, my my number three is uh, already been lo- been mentioned on this. Um, podcast but it's the uh the lost world um oh, yeah, which I, I, th- that too. I think is worse than jurassic park 3 um i bought this like when we were reviewing jurassic park last summer oh no um, <laughs> it was it was available for like six bucks in 4k and i was like oh my, i'm interested in seeing this sequel and so i bought it and i was like oh, oh fuck you know now i gotta <laughs> look at it every time i go through my movies um, and uh, yeah, so that's whatever. That's the oh, th- that is the end of my willingly bought this not for the podcast list. So, um. <laughs> okay, my number three. We're getting into my VHS tapes now. Um, wow! I just looked, and this actually also came from the best year in movie history, nineteen ninety nine. Bruce Beresford's Double Jeopardy. Oof, why did you buy that? I don't know. <laughs> well, I actually I do know. I'm sure there's a there's a sex scene with Ashley Judd. <laughs> you know, I was thinking that might be it. <laughs> That's probably it. Um Yeah, so God, I don't really remember really, very like, much about this movie. That stuff, huh? What? The internet has really helped us out with that stuff. No oh, need yeah, to buy DVDs. Yeah, we don't anymore. have to buy we don't have to buy VHS tapes and fast yeah. forward to the sex scene. <laughs> But then, you know, you'd always have to remember to rewind in case somebody put it in after you and saw right, right where you left off. <laughs> That's right. Um, so, yeah, Double Jeopardy, 40 on Metascore. I haven't seen this movie in years, but I can only imagine how terrible it is. Um, Bruce Beresford, I never heard of him. He directed Driving Miss Daisy, though. Hmm. Yeah, don't we also not like that movie? I never saw that. I mean, me neither. I mean, I saw um, the remake that won Best Picture last year, but... Yeah. <laughs> Uh, all right. So my number two. Yeah. All right. Um, so, uh, I'm going to preface this. The only reason I own this is because I was literally able to buy it for cheaper than it was to rent. Uh, and that's, uh, there's a store in town here where you can, sometimes they just have the disc, not even a case. And so I got the Blu-ray, I got the Blu-ray of this for a dollar 97, which is literally cheaper than me re- walking across the, uh, the shopping plaza to the red box to rent it on Blu-ray. And it is Independence Day Resurgence. Uh, yeah. Talk oh. about a dog of a movie. Oh my God. Did, did either of you see no. this? I think I might've oh, rented it, it but I might've paid more awful. to rent it than you did for the Blu-ray. So I guess I'm worse. I, <laughs> yeah, again, the only reason I own it is because it was that cheap, but God, was it an awful movie. So bad. 32 on Metacritic. Yeah, I, I'm, I've already snuck ahead to look at my number one, and I'm honestly surprised at the score it gets. I, it's higher, much higher than I would have anticipated. Well, I looked, Die Hard 2 had like a 67. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> what? <laughs> All right, J-Pen, your number two. Score. 
Uh, my number two is the remake of Driving Miss Daisy, and that's Green Book. Oh, you had to you had to buy it. I did have to buy it. Yeah, I know you got the pleasure of seeing it with in the a bunch theater. Of yeah, other with... intelligent people in the movie theater. But yeah. um, yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. At least I. You didn't have the option to rent it, did you? No, because we it we did it right early. when it came out. Yeah, they do this oh, thing now where you yeah, have to so wait it's like two, two weeks, weeks yeah. and you can buy it. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, man, I mean, that's worse because now you have that movie just staring you in the face and reminding you that you had <laughs> yep. to watch it. Yep. Um, okay, my number two, I am not 100% sure of this, but I really do think that this was the first DVD that I ever bought. Uh, Pearl Harbor, a Michael Bay film. Uh, Why? Nope. Why did you buy that movie? I don't know. Um I don't remember that at all. I actually don't have this anymore. I also have a vague recollection that I might have given it to my sister because I think she had a crush on either Hartnett or Affleck. I'm not sure which one. Um, hmm. But, yes, I owned all three hours and three minutes of disc one plus the other disc that came intact that had all the special features, which I imagine I watched. But do you, do you, Did Jeremy own that movie as well? Because I remember I somebody, know. one of you guys owning it and borrowing it from you guys to watch and being like, why do they own this movie? <laughs> <laughs> it was probably me. <laughs> um, I mean, th- that is such like a colossal fuck of a movie that like, why, you know, given what we've seen of Michael Bay since then, like, why would you ever trust him with a, such a his important historical moment? Um, well, what's, what's, what's a worse, a bigger question than even that, which is pretty big is why, when I finally got a DVD player, was I like, okay. Pearl Harbor, it is. Well, I mean, it's. I mean, it's like a. It's like a. It's a very like technically uh, yeah, epic, proficient and yeah. epic movie, and yeah. the visual effects. You know, speaking of ILM, the, the, the visual effects in that movie are really impressive. Um, but mm-hmm. yeah, horrible, horrible movie. Yep. <laughs> yep. All right, Brantley. Yeah, number one. I'm very excited about yeah. this. Yeah, this is like <laughs> okay. Brantley's. Like, okay. this is a good list for Brantley. It's amazing. <laughs> so. Again, I own this because it's a part of the series it's in. Oh, see, that's disappointing. I, I want to hear more that you willingly bought, Brantley. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> oh, sorry. Uh, <laughs> no, this is uh, this is the fourth in the franchise that came in a Blu-ray set. Speaking about buying stuff on Blu-ray super cheap, I bought the entire Indiana Jones complete oh, set for $2 yes. at a pawn shop, and it is Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. Oh. You probably own that too, Chapin. Awful movie. Lucasfilm. No, I do not own that, Lee. It's available to rent. It's on (laughs) Netflix. Uh, Yeah, 65. That's just like respect for the trilogy. Yeah, there's something going on. That movie made uh, way too much money for how bad it was. Speaking of Lucas, Lucas fucking things up. Yeah. (laughs) And that's higher than Temple of Doom. Now, Temple of Doom is, is my least favorite of the other three, but still, like. It's a better movie than Crystal this Skull. This movie was so bad. Like, what were they doing? Awful. Like, it was just like, like aliens and stuff. Like, it just made no sense. Can I can I provide another anecdote, guys? Um, in that making of uh, from Phantom Menace, um, there's a moment when Spielberg comes and visits Lucas, and Lucas is showing him the like the mock-up of the droid um, in in outside, in the studio outside of London, and. Lucas is describing like how big that battle, how amazing the battle at the end of the movie is going to be, and he's like, "Yeah, it's going to be like war and peace. It's like a, you know the biggest battle you've ever seen." And what I and I did the math, and I real I looked closely, and Spielberg is wearing like a like a um, Marines jacket. And I'm like, "Oh, he must be visiting from the set of Saving Private Ryan." I'm like, and, and Lucas is telling him that his battle. At the end of Phantom Menace is going to be amazing, whereas Spielberg is, and he was like just nodding his head. Spielberg is visiting from the set of one of the most epic war films ever made. Oh, Jesus Christ. <laughs> so, and then, then later, insane. the two, these two nerds got together and made Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. Yeah. Like it's yeah. going to be War of Peace combined with Saving Private Ryan combined <laughs> with Star Wars and the X Files. Yeah. <laughs> Okay. My number one. Is it my turn? Yep. My number one yep. is the dreaded a movie. This was a, a tough one, but um, it is Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri. Oh, come uh, on. This is no. that's so disappointing. Pick something no, no, else. No, 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 no. That's it. That's it. I, 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 looked at, I looked at that list of movies, and I'm like, what of these movies do I want to watch the least? And it was that I, one. I own that one, too. Mm. 
Yep, we all we had to buy it. Yeah, but that one's not nearly in the in the uh, canon that some of these other ones are. You don't think? <laughs> well, um, you liked that movie. I did. Yeah, I did. And you were wrong. So. <laughs> yeah. Well, my number one is more along the lines of what I was thinking when I suggested this list. Um, again, we have another VHS. We have another movie from the iconic. 1999 <laughs> uh it is and I, I should say first i oh i'm sort God. of embarrassed to admit this one because like I, I i liked this movie when i owned it in high school or at least pretended to like it and like i like sort of gag thinking about it now <laughs> <laughs> i'm it so excited varsity blues oh come uh. on <laughs> <laughs> what uh I mean, I get it. Like, if you did, you play football in high school. Well, no, I played varsity sports, but that's not like yeah. this, though. <laughs> no, I know, but it's like it was uh, like having played football in high school. Like, I get enjoying it in high school because it's like a pump up kind of movie. Yeah, I guess. You know? Oh my god, it's so like I literally cringe thinking about this movie, or if I ever catch a clip of it on TV or anything, like it's so bad. The acting is so bad. Yeah. Like. And the story is just ridiculous. Like all the like thirty-five-year-olds <laughs> in high schoolers. Ugh. Yeah, uh, that's not God. that bad. And now I do think that I t- I taped this movie off of like HBO, so I didn't pay for it. But I guess we were probably paying for HBO. No, 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 that doesn't count. This is a this is a terrible number one. You have no. much worse number ones. Liz. Well, yours is a, actually a good movie. No, it's I, I would so much rather watch Var- if I had to go to a desert island and uh, someone said, "Do you I, want to take no Varsity way. Blues or Three Billboards?" I would absolutely take Varsity. Oh Blues. Oh my God, no way! I just I, 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 <laughs> that's not possible. And you know what? I bet we'll come back and Jeremy will have agreed with me. What, 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 you, what do you think, Brantley? Uh, you know what? Honestly, if I if between those two, I would probably choose Varsity Blues. You know why Thank though? You. Because Thank it's you. a you can laugh at Varsity Blues. Like there's no. no, 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 no that's no, why. No, that's the that's well, the appeal. That, and it, it actually has like if I have nothing else on this island, there's at least like some okay music. Like Welcome to the Jungle will kick in at times, so I can like listen. <laughs> you just, just for play the music. it and listen to the set like you're listening <laughs> yeah, to a the, CD. The Thunderstruck <laughs> sequence is awesome. No. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Exactly. Come on, guys. <laughs> Such great James Vanderbeek too. Oh my god. <laughs> I don't want your life. (laughs) Beautiful. Well, that's going to do it for this edition of the Get Your Film Fix podcast. Amazing. Uh, Brantley, I'm going to give the fixie for best top five to you. That was an amazing trip down memory road. Uh, (laughs) Brantley's total metascore, adding them all together, still doesn't equal 100. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) Lee's, I feel like yours is pretty good until the number one, um, but that's okay. We'll let that one go. Uh, but, yeah, thank you, gentlemen, for joining me for another throwback to 1999. Um, do we have any ideas of what we're going to do next week? Uh, you know, I wouldn't totally mind that movie uh, Long Shot. I'd like to see that as well, mm. so maybe we'll do that. Um, it made very little money this weekend, but that's okay. All right. It's also, so, uh, it also has two Marvel movies in front of it. Yeah, it's true, yeah. Um, all right, so thank you very much, and have a pleasant afternoon. I'm staying. I'm finishing my coffee. Enjoying my coffee.